Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. Today, I want to talk to you about something that I really wish that I had when I was younger, when I was coming out of college and considering careers, which is a product that really helps us examine who we are, what really is going to make us satisfied, and what's going to make us satisfying day-to-day life. Because like many people in my general age range, a lot of us went to college and picked something that we're interested in, picked something that you know maybe we're good at in school, but didn't really think about this day-to-day. And what really drives satisfaction with, with work, which is something that ends up being probably the first or second biggest use of time during adulthood behind sleeping and maybe something else. My guest today, Brian Dick, is a professor of psychology at Colorado State University, as well as the co-founder of a product called Jobsology, which is a, a product that helps a lot of outgoing college students, as well as other career change people, examine what they really want to do and find a career path that's going to be way more fulfilling. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It's a joy to be with you. I'm always glad when people are are happy to be discussing their pursuits with me on this podcast because it's uh, such a positive community of people in a way, just talking about what we're doing. And I say this because at the time of recording, we're in the middle of Denver Startup Week, which is another area where you see a lot of people just talking about their pursuits, talking about what really drives them. And so, Brian, what drove you to, to start Jobsology? What were you observing that made you decide that this was worth your, your time, your effort, your, your sweat, everything else that people say? A little context. I'm a vocational psychologist, and oh, wow. uh, one of the my roles at the university is training our PhD students in counseling psychology to facilitate career counseling. You know, a lot of magic happens in a career counseling relationship. It's very powerful, but it's also not always accessible for lots of people. And so, one of the motivations behind starting Jobsology was thinking about ways to democratize uh, the career assessment and counseling process so that in a very efficient way, a much broader array of people can experience the kind of support that they might get in career counseling and, and have access to the kind of information about what makes them unique and how the ways that they're unique intersect with opportunities and needs in the world of work uh, so that they can make informed decisions about their lives. And so what prevents people from getting access to the resources they need to really dig deep inside themselves and figure out what's going to drive them to a satisfying day-to-day life? Yeah, well, I, I think lots of things. I think for some people, there are internal reasons why we don't pursue things that would be in our best interests. Maybe we lack confidence or uh, we just lack awareness. Um, There are also external reasons. Some people just lack access to opportunity. And many people lack time and resources and access to the kind of support that would be really helpful. You know, one-on-one individual career development support can be kind of expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, It can also be a little bit tricky to figure out what's a real high quality kind of experience or service and, and, and what isn't. I think breaking down some of those barriers and and walls and granting people access to tools and resources to help them make informed choices just seems really important. 
And so let's first talk about these psychological barriers, because I think a lot of people understand pretty well what a a monetary barrier is. A career coaching service will cost a thousand dollars and you just don't have a thousand dollars. But psychologically, what prevents a lot of people from looking deeper inside themselves? Because the statistics have shown pretty consistently that more than half of people in America and an even higher percentage number of people worldwide are simply just not satisfied with what they do for work. Yeah, I think a lot of people, if you ask them why they do what they do, they kind of fell into it. They didn't necessarily go through decision-making process that was really well-informed. It was they knew somebody who had an opportunity. You know, my, my uncle talked to me about a job opportunity. I didn't have anything else going, so I decided to do it. And suddenly, six, seven years later, here I am doing something I never thought I'd be doing. That's one reason. Another is I I think people don't really have just a, a, a great sense of the things that really drive job satisfaction. So if you think of it in terms of fit, we can look at how people differ in terms of their interests, what they enjoy, in terms of their personality, you know, their characteristic traits, in terms of their values, what they really need in a work environment in order to be satisfied. All of these things people differ on. It's not always easy, especially for young people as they're coming of age, they're still forming their identities and so forth. They don't always have insight. And the culture imposes a time frame for making these decisions, right? Yeah. As we transition from adolescence into early adulthood. And so people feel lots of pressure and you got to do something. Sometimes it just becomes overwhelming and you end up just making choices based on impulse, uh, not being as planful or as well-informed as you'd like to be. Or uh, a lot of people, I think, make decisions based on what they think they ought to do um, or based on what you know their parents or the culture tells them that they should do uh, rather than what really brings them joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose. Unfortunately for lots of folks, they're well into adulthood when they realize, how did this happen? And you know, how can I... <laughs> How can I kind of like back the truck up a little bit and then re-engage in a way that's that's more planful and that's more likely to be satisfying? Yeah, because I think what we're talking about is, first of all, people are generally 18 years old when they're going into college and they're picking a major, picking something to study. And then you're 22, 23 years old when you're coming out of college, maybe a little bit older if you're coming out with an advanced degree, master's, postgraduate thing. And at that point, I think the research shows that it takes until the age of 25 for your prefrontal cortex to fully form. And then so many people say it takes till much later, potentially even into your 40s, to really understand who you are and what really drives you. So what can someone do at that age, the age of 22, say, coming out of college for most people, to really get to something that they really want to do to I don't want to say accelerate the process like our culture would dictate, but to work with someone at the age of 22 where they are in life. I keep talking about the U.S. because that's where I live and operate and where you do. Uh, Different cultures and different national contexts have different systems that can adjust the timeline a little bit. But I think one of the challenges is for a traditional college student like what you're, you know, the person that you're describing, So you start at 18, you kind of have to declare a major at the midpoint, if not earlier, right? At least Mm -hmm. by the midpoint. Uh, So now you're 20. And so there's lots of pressure to then 
I mean, you'll get letters from the registrar saying, we're not going to let you register for classes until you you tell us what your major is, right? If you're undecided. Yeah. So that's a requirement. And I think a lot of students just aren't quite sure uh, what lane to choose, especially folks who have broad interests where they, and I was one of these students when I was an undergraduate, I liked lots of different things. And the thought yeah. of choosing one path, you know, if that meant not choosing something else can create paralysis. For sure. In terms of decision-making for folks, right? Figurative paralysis, obviously. People choose what's interesting to them without having a clear sense of where that leads. And by the time someone is 22, if they've got enough credits and they're looking at graduating, they're kind of maybe playing catch-up a little bit and seeing what's available that links to the training that they've received. And even then, the the array of options that are available have have decreased quite a bit just based on the decisions they've made. For somebody at 22, to answer your question directly, uh, adaptability is key. I just painted a picture where someone's, you know, the array of options is narrowed. But the reality is that lots of people have career paths that look kind of meandering. You know, they end up in a place that's pretty far removed from where they started. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think embracing that as an option, a possibility, recognizing that, hey, my interests may, you know, may yeah. be very stable, but the way I can express those, I've got more options than maybe I realize. And a big key is developing the capacity to just sort of recognize and roll with the changes that inevitably I'm going to confront. So that ability to adapt, I think, is probably pretty crucial for somebody in that age bracket. So in a way, it's accepting the fact that I'm a 22-year-old and I'm picking something now. And this is based on an imperfect understanding of who I am because I have so much more maturing to do to really realize who I am and what my true purpose is and kind of just roll with that uncertainty Roll with like, I'm making the best decision for what I know now. And in five years, I'll know myself so much better and it's likely going to lead me somewhere different. Yeah. I think that that kind of attitude does take the pressure off a little bit, you know, just recognizing that my first job out of school is not going to lock me in. It's just a first job. It's a stepping stone and and it's a an opportunity to learn and grow and then reevaluate. I think that's a healthy perspective to have. I will say if those choices that you make that lead you to where you are at 22 are more informed than what's typical for college students. If there's a way to make more informed choices understanding your unique attributes, who you are and how they intersect with the world of work, then probably you know, you're not going to feel caught off guard and stuck. You're going to have a higher level of confidence mm. than what might otherwise be the case. And and so, you know, that's where when I talk about interests and values and personality and workplace culture preferences, these kinds of things, like these are things we can assess mm-hmm. in people and then give them information about those and have them interact with that and think about, okay, how am I unique on these characteristics? And what are the implications of that for what kind of work I'm going to find satisfying? Going through a process like that, I think, puts people in a stronger position to make choices that are likely to lead them into really satisfying purpose-driven work. So it sounds like what you're saying is that even with an imperfect understanding of yourself, whatever age you're at, if your understanding of yourself is still imperfect, it's still missing something, it's still evolving, if you're asking the right questions, if you're making the right evaluation, you're still going to result or come to a better result 
What is the difference between a traditional manner in which people pick something to pursue that often has resulted in, in a lot of this disengagement, dissatisfaction, unhappiness that we have historically seen, and a better, more informed, more, mm-hmm. you know, the, the te- techniques that you are kind of advocating that people look into when they pick a pursuit? Yeah, I, I think often people make choices on the basis of what pays the most, kind of the give me the best options in terms of employability, what, what jobs are the hottest, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. I mean, I think of The Graduate, Dustin Hoffman's character being told, you, you should go into plastics. You know, this is the <laughs> 1960s. It's like, I mean, pe- people have been getting yeah. that advice forever, right? Go where the jobs are. That's not a bad consideration, but uh, for long-term satisfaction, I think it's really important to start with understanding, you know, what you really enjoy and what you value. A lot of times I use this this metaphor of the boat, and this comes from E.K. Strong Jr., pioneer in vocational interest measurement, wrote this analogy decades ago. You know, you think of a boat has a motor and a rudder. Uh, yeah, those things are integrated in modern boats, but the point is, you know, the rudder determines the direction of the boat and the motor determines how fast and how far the boat goes in that direction. Well, people mm-hmm. are like that too. And for people, the rudder is interests. Uh, interests and secondarily values. So you think about what you enjoy, that determines what kind of direction a person heads in, and then their abilities and skills, their personality, that determines how successful they are when they head in that direction. But just because a person's good at something, you know, they can perform well, that doesn't mean that that thing is going to provide long-lasting enjoyment and meaning and satisfaction for them. People can be good at things they don't actually enjoy that much. And so to me, the starting point is always understand your interests, what kinds of things you enjoy. Let that be the driver in kind of the first wave of decisions. And then within that, you can develop and and train and learn the skills you need to be successful within that path. Uh, But the interests will provide a sustaining motivation. And then you can develop the skills and what you need to be successful after that. I think, you know, had I known that earlier on, You know, I mean, I got there over the course of my career. It took me a while to figure it out. It involved a little bit of trial and error and the passage of time and and that kind of thing. And one of the things that we're able to do with assessments is uh, give people reliable and valid information that can maybe speed up that process and make it a little more efficient. Yeah, because that can be for a lot of people, especially people who started out in life doing what they felt like they were supposed to do, right? That situation we talk about. And then all of a sudden they wake up one day and they realize I'm miserable and my work life is seeping into my other areas of life. Because if you're not a happy person at work, then you go and whether you're in a relationship or not, or whether you're trying to meet people, whether you have friends, people are going to distance from you if you're miserable all the time, or people are going to not want to get close to you if you're miserable all the time. So getting stuck in that. So you're talking about preventing getting stuck in that spot for too long or making that whole process a lot more seamless for a lot more people and saying, okay, like, yeah, there's going to be some trial and error. You're going to have to figure out what you want, but don't get stuck in this spot for a long time. Like some of us unfortunately did. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's a game of odd. Human beings are like very difficult to measure precisely and to make predictions with 100% accuracy, right? Yeah, uh, but for what, sure. we, what we can do is just sort of like make the odds as high as possible. 
that the steps a person take is going to lead to joy and satisfaction in their lives. Now, do you see some aspects of basic human needs in there? You know, for example, a lot of people complain about feeling like just a cog in the wheel or something Mm. like that, you know, feeling that you have some sort of creative say, like, are these basic universal needs same to everyone? Or are there some people that you observe that need them more than others and other people that, you know, maybe this job is very much cut and paste, plug and play, follow Mm -hmm. a procedure, but some people are just right for that and other people aren't. Yeah, I think a little of both. There are some universal human needs that need to belong. Uh, what Viktor Frankl called the will to meaning, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, the need to make sense of your experience and to feel that it matters, I think are are universal, are things that everyone experiences. But in terms of how those things find expression within the world of work, you know, some people have different preferences than others in terms of what they need in a work environment. Mm-hmm. in order to be satisfied, right? So some people need lots of independence uh, and feel really hemmed in and kind of miserable if yeah. there's lots of structure <laughs> in their environment, right? I know how that feels, yep. Yeah, see, yeah, you and I are cut from the same cloth. I mean, that's one of the joys yeah. of academic life is I have lots of latitude. But other people feel lost without lots of structure. They need that in order to feel like, you know, they know what they're doing and they are are you know, staying on track, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, yeah. now to get back to kind of the, the root of your question in there about feeling like a cog in the system and that kind of thing, I do think that jobs differ in terms of how much dignity, you know, they offer. Yeah, people. for sure. And so self-determination, you know, the ability to sort of like express who you are in the job, the more people are able to do that, usually the better off they are in terms of their satisfaction. And and when they're prevented from doing that because the work is rote or is so highly structured, you know, then the harder that can be. And there are ways to do some, you know, to kind of change your approach to work. If you're in a job like that, think about the relational aspects of it, really, you know, the the folks you work with, that kind of thing. Um, But usually it requires compensatory strategies like that in order to find meaning when you're in jobs that are difficult like that. And that's one of the things when people talk about robots coming for yeah, uh, coming for all for of our jobs, jobs yep. that kind of thing. You know, there is kind of like a positive flip side. And some of the jobs that can be more easily automated are the jobs where there's probably less self-determination built in already. And I think, you know, history shows us that technological innovation So far in history, it's always created more jobs than it's replaced. I'm an optimistic person, and I think some of the the automation actually creates more opportunities to engage work in a more humane way, actually. Well, you just kind of touched on another area of interest of mine, which is my my futurist side, my Uh part of me that always wants to speculate about the future. I thought about the same topics. There's a lot of people who say they're coming for a job once certain key job groups are automated. There's going to be some sort of massive uprising that's going to cause some sort of terrible result when, you know, the, the Luddite movement of 200 ish years ago was predicting pretty much the same exact thing with the industrial revolution, because no one at that point could really picture an automobile industry that would eventually spring up from that. So one of the things I'm wondering is that you're looking at this automation. Are you saying that automation is going to potentially eliminate some of these 
less dignified job, you know, as you say that there's a, there is a dignity difference between some jobs and others. I always have yeah. to be careful playing futurist, right? Cause yeah, for sure. uh, you know, anyone who plays this game uh, has to recognize that some of what they foresee maybe will come to pass, but they'll be way off in other regards. Right. So, but it is fun to speculate. Oh, always. Yeah. It, to me, you know, if you think of work as an opportunity to engage in creative service, you know, like express your gifts in ways that contribute value to the world. Um, it's it's just easier to do that when you have more latitude than what's afforded by, you know, like the stereotypic factory job. Yeah, uh, for sure. Where you're pulling a lever all 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 day. You know, some of that is you read Studs Terkel, you know, that book Working, and you see how crushing that that kind of work can be. From my understanding of the literature on this, you know, and, and you mentioned the Luddites. Yeah, it, anytime there's a wave of technological innovation that applies to work, then there's kind of widespread fear that this is going to take all of our jobs. Um, and when in reality, it takes some jobs and then it creates other jobs. And yeah, so people just got to adjust. They've got to adjust. And the culture has to take seriously the need to train and to equip people with a different or broader array of skills and abilities to be competitive for those jobs. But if we do that well, then I, I do think that people end up winning. Yeah. And for sure, like it is a little bit of a trap and I fall for it probably a little bit too much to try to speculate the future. Yeah. I, I like to speculate whether or not the 40 hour work week is going to go by the wayside with automation and you know what that could possibly mean for other life outcomes, such as our, you know, right. isolation, some of the other yeah. things that are making us anxious. But of course we never know how it's going to work because there were economists a hundred years ago, predicting that the 40 hour work week would be gone by yes. the end of the exactly. last century. And if anything, we exactly. worked more. So, um, exactly. We know, you know, well, one of the things that all these innovations do not change is fundamental human nature. Uh, yeah, for and sure. So, that's, I think we always have to remind ourselves that people have the same kind of motivations across decades. And uh, so, that those kinds of things are hard to shake. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we live in an interesting time because people are realizing that some of the things we've done recently aren't necessarily making us happy, including yeah. as you've been observing your whole life, how we choose what job we choose, but we're probably still got a little ways to go to figure out, okay, what is it that we need to do to make us, us happier? And so what I'm wondering is when you're talking with people about different jobs, you briefly brought up people pick jobs based on where the opportunities are, where the money is, things like that. Are there other areas of life, such as do you need this big house or anything else that people need to kind of go into their heads and reevaluate when selecting a career and selecting a lifestyle that's going to make them actually happy as opposed to what a lot of people do today? I think so. For people who have real needs, you know, which is more than half of the global population uh, mm -hmm. who are, who really are insecure when it comes to feeding their family and themselves, uh, then resources really are crucial to their well-being, right? If your survival needs are not met, then that is essential. The evidence that I see shows that once you get to that point where your basic needs for survival are met and can be counted on, uh, then the relationship between income and well-being is 
essentially zero. Have worked with lots of folks who uh, wake up in midlife realizing, yeah, I built this like mini empire here and now I'm chained to it with these golden handcuffs and I'm miserable. I mean, you described uh, some examples of that earlier. And so to me, it just comes back to, look, are you in a role in your vocational life where you are expressing your gifts in ways that make the world better, where there's a fit, uh, where you're like a swimmer gliding with the current rather than laboring against it? You know, I can operationalize fit. We can talk about this in really specific terms, right? Measuring different dimensions of uh, individual differences within people and then mapping those onto opportunities and needs in the world. This is essentially what Pathway U does. This is the product that Jobsology developed that is an online assessment system that a person responds to a series of items, gets some feedback about these characteristics that make them unique, interests, values, personality, workplace culture preferences, uh, and then can explore careers that uh, show up for them using based on algorithms that combine all that information and then map that on to uh, the differences that exist between jobs in the world of work. And when when people are looking at jobs that fit them well, and then they make choices that allow them to build careers, you know, within the world in spheres that fit them well, then it, it just makes it much more likely that they're going to feel like, hey, the weaknesses that I have, they're things I'm working on, but you know what? I don't need to rely on them in my job and the strengths that I have, the things that just come naturally to me, those are things that are front and center in the work that I do. And when, when people are in situations like that, everything just feels, it just feels right. It feels easier. It just feels less taxing. Work is invigorating for people like that. It's not draining. I mean, imagine that all the people that have been sort of churned out through the pandemic and and now are just sort of living with a lot of misery, think back to what it might have been like, or or maybe a time when it was for you, where you wake up eager to get to work, excited about it. The spillover effect you're talking about where workplace misery starts to bleed into, you know, your other your areas life. of yeah. life. It works with workplace joy too. I mean, when things are going really well and you're really excited on the job, then that spills over into your relationships also. And people recognize, wow, that, you know, that Brian's got a spring in his step because things are going well for him. And, you know, it's like, I want to be around people like that. Oh, for sure. I mean, we all love being around people like that. (laughs) And um, according to the research that I've read, you probably know this better than me. It feels like the percentage of people that actually are in that place is somewhere around 15 to 20. Can you spot a person and just have a conversation with them and have a good idea. Okay. This seems like the kind of person who's actually got that spring in their step because they're pursuing the right things or talk to this other person and say, Oh my God, he seems like he's just really, really in a bad place and consuming a lot of negativity in this day to day. Well, absolutely. I mean, you can tell within about 30 seconds, you know, tell me about your experience of your job right now. And some people, their faces brighten. Yeah, uh, Just being asked the question, it's like the energy starts to brim up within them. And then you can't shut them up because they love talking about it. And other people, they're just like, you got to be kidding me. And, you know, and and their, their face does the opposite. And you can see the energy just kind of gets sucked out of them, just even thinking, how do I even start responding to that? So 
obviously for most of us, the, the experience is not black or white. It's not, oh, everything is great or everything's totally miserable. It fluctuates from day to day, maybe even from hour to hour. So these are complex things, right? Again, I just think about it in terms of um, probabilities. It's a game of odds. And the question is, what kind of environments can you pursue and enter that's going to just make it more likely rather than less likely that you're going to experience happiness and joy? And then for someone that's in that unfortunate place where they're just, you know, really miserable with their what they do from day to day, what's a realistic time frame? Say they come to your program or any similar program in which they can get from this totally miserable place to a place where their odds are a lot better and they're at least swimming with the current, as you mentioned before. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a hard question to answer, Stephen, because it's it's dependent on so many factors, right? Um, mm-hmm. so, so, for example, somebody who's got a family with young kids and there's a lot of financial obligation that they're responsible for, obviously making big wholesale changes to their work situation. You have to be really careful and thoughtful uh, about it um, because you know, you're not in a position where maybe you have the kind of freedom to take big risks. Uh, whereas someone with fewer obligations and a little more latitude, it's a bit easier for, right? And so, you know, the time frame, it, it, I'd say it all, it all depends. It depends on a person's circumstances in life. It also depends on what type of changes we're making. You know, there are ways to mm-hmm. change an existing situation without leaving it as well, right? Like some of the folks who talk about job crafting point out that we're not passive recipients of our work environments. We can be active shapers of it. We can change the way we think about the job, the tasks that we engage in, the relational experience on the job. And you can take something that's that's miserable and at least make some improvements within it. Uh, so, you know, that might be an interesting starting point for a lot of folks. Just try that out and see how it goes. Um, but for folks who actually need to kind of change paths entirely, the timing can be tricky. But where where it's helpful to to work with somebody who can guide you through that, you know, then you can sort of take a step back, come up with a plan and um, implement it in a way that works for you, for your family. Yeah, that that makes sense. And the idea that the first wave is internal, that you change your thoughts first and then what's around you changes later is an idea that I've been entertaining quite a bit over the past couple of years. Uh, just thinking about it like, yeah, okay, this is not a perfect situation, but there's this idea out there that going into any situation, if you have a preconceived notion about how it's going to go, it's way more likely to end up confirming your thought process. Yeah, the the self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah, that is, I totally agree. And so tell me a little bit about, you mentioned Pathway U, how Mm -hmm. the jobsology goes. Like you said, it seems like you work with both college students as well as people doing career transitions. You mentioned the midlife crisis. Uh, is Is this something that people who have other challenges qualify for for aid to enter the program to to fulfill it and then what do they do after they take the the self-assessment the what we have is a product it's a it's a software as a service an online career assessment system 
it's a platform. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways we make that available is by partnering with colleges and universities. And so we've got about 150 of those who license the product and then deploy it with their students. But anyone can pay for a lifetime membership. Uh, it's very affordable. You just go to pathwayu.com and follow the links. And then basically a user will create a profile, log in, takes a series of assessments. It only takes about 25 minutes. These are measures of interest, values, personality, and workplace culture preferences. They are scientifically supported, high level of reliability and validity. Basically, these are the highest quality measures that we could um, find and develop that are as short as possible, right? You want to balance you know, the user experience with the quality of the information. So a person mm. takes those and then is immediately receives feedback that they can interact with and think through, okay, this is sort of a new way to, to describe me and to understand how I'm unique and to think about how that showed up in my life and then to use that to kind of project forward. Um, so it provides that feedback, but then there's also a career match tool where it takes that information and then based on your unique pattern of psychological characteristics, it generates some uh, occupations that are predicted to fit you well. doesn't tell you what you should do with your life. No assessment or system can possibly do that. But it does give you access to information um, that just helps you make informed choices to increase your sense of confidence um, and planfulness so that the choices you're making, you're not flying blind and you're also not only going by what other people are telling you you should do or what looks like it'll pay the most. Uh, Instead, you're thinking about, hey, how am I unique? What are the implications of that in terms of choosing a career path that's going to fit me well? And then on the back end, there's a a whole suite of tools that are available for folks. So um, a person can, you know, decide on a career path to pursue Uh, then they can search for available training. They can search for open jobs related to that. They can get some support within the system on refining my resume uh, or preparing for an interview or negotiating a job offer, all of that. So, you know, it's designed to be self-directed. Somebody could could log in and and, uh, in a self-contained system, go through all the steps on their own. Uh, But our data suggests that it's especially effective when uh, facilitated with human interaction pulling together, you know, a personal board of directors, people in your life who you can bounce ideas off of and seek some feedback, you know, working with other trusted mentors. Obviously, if folks have access to a counselor, that is a very effective as well. Uh, not everyone has that. And and so it's it's not limited to that scenario and how it's deployed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's a little bit about Pathway U. And so for the sake of the listeners out there, it's Pathway with the letter U. That's right. Pathway, then the letter U.com. Pathwayu.com. Yep. What are the average users going to look through after they take the self-assessment? Yeah. So there are some videos embedded uh, in the system to help you kind of understand a day in the life of different types of jobs. A lot of the tools, yeah. And a lot of the tools are, you know, text-based, but interactive there's a workbook that we've piloted and tested and and that folks find useful that will uh, give you some writing uh, exercises to help you just sort of engage your results in a deeper way that's available uh, within the system. So kind of a variety of different ways that people can engage in the information. Nice. And so people who are enrolled in these 
universities, 150 universities have access to it based on like the university itself paying for the access to the program. Now, I've described this as a self-assessment every time I've referenced this, but Mm -hmm. there is a school of thought out there, and you mentioned the board of directors, that says that sometimes you can have your own blinders and you might need other people. So would you recommend or possibly advise people to look into having this board of directors, your closest friends, be there with you while doing the self-assessment and say, is this really a strongly agree or is this just how I want to perceive myself versus what I really am? Yeah, there's kind of informal self-assessment where you just kind of like think about your experience. What do I think about myself? You know, then there's using assessment methods that require, you know, like responding to a series of items. That's what Pathway U includes. That's a type of self-assessment, but it's a little bit different in that uh, those instruments, you know, have been validated. There's, there's, There's research demonstrating that the scores that they generate are reliable and also predict outcomes. So there's a little bit of some objectivity uh, that gets inserted then it goes beyond just thinking about myself to actually responding to items that have been vetted and so forth. The best way to approach decisions like this is to use multiple sources of information. So certainly self-assessment, thinking about your own experience, uh, objective psychological assessments uh, like what we've described, but then for sure, um, interacting with other people. And I always say, think about three to five people who know you well, who have your best interests in mind, uh, who don't have an agenda uh, other than supporting your well-being, and maybe who don't know each other, who you might know in different contexts, right? So if you're seeking input from folks who you know, somebody at work, somebody from school, so a long, long-term long friend, a family member, you got people who interact with you in different life roles. And when you receive feedback from them, look for where that feedback converges. You know, when you're hearing the same kind of thing over and over again from people who know you from different places, uh, then probably there's something to that, you know, to that theme that's emerging or whatever. And so it's all about just like creating the conditions in which you have the information you need to make decisions with confidence. And uh, more information is better. uh, And, you know, different types of information is better as well. So, yeah, that's kind of how I would put it together. So interesting is the process to take the assessment, watch some of the videos, see what the day in the life of some of these things are, but then also really pay attention to this feedback, especially if it's consistent, three or four different people are all saying, oh, yeah, you tend to do this, or I don't know how you would ever like that. And people who know you best are saying, I don't see you doing this job and being happy. Then yeah, there's definitely something to to exactly. be and when someone says that, you can say, well, tell me more about that. Why would you say that? And and then it just allows you to kind of think this through in a deeper way. Uh, so yeah, for sure. That's very helpful. Also, we're, you know, we're created to be in relationship. Like, yeah. you know, these kinds of decisions are best made, not in a vacuum, but in for the sure. context of those relationships. For sure. And then what does the future hold for Pathway U? Jobsology? Uh, are you looking to expand, have a greater impact, uh, integrate with job search tools? Because we all know that our current method of finding jobs is is a ball of unnecessary anxiety for a lot of people. 
That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, for sure, expansion. So we have 150 schools. There's a lot more than that out there. So we'd, we'd yeah. love to have uh, more and more students accessing what we're able to provide and using that to inform their decision making. The attributes that we measure, I've listed them now several times, things like interest, values, personality. these things are really stable. The way they find expression changes over the lifespan, traits, they tend not to change a lot on average. The things that you're interested in now are probably going to look pretty similar to the things that you're interested in down the road. And so that being the case, you know, there are long-term implications for this. And these instruments are valid at, at later points in life as well, even transitioning to retirement. So long-term, you know, finding other opportunities uh, to deploy the platform that that we've developed, like for employers with employee development, for example, um, or helping people navigate the transition to retirement. These are all ways these same basic principles can be applied. So there's a lot of room for growth. And we're excited about the work that we're doing now. And we're, we're excited about the possibilities for um, doing it better and doing more of it in the future. Well, as the host of this podcast, I'm excited about anything that's going to help get people out of that situation where they feel stuck, disengaged, and uh, not really living their best life because all these things are not considered. So hopefully this product combined with a whole bunch of other products that people are developing elsewhere helps get us to the point where instead of Sunday scaries you know, thank God it's Friday being the rule as it is now to being more the exception of saying, okay, there are some people that really, you never going to get everyone, but more often than not, people are happy with what they do. And they're like, yep, the weekend was fun. Now it's Monday. Now it's time to go back to work or whatever day of the week is, because we do need to reject the one size fits all work culture that um, the assembly line and then the work culture that derived from the assembly line that people didn't really think about for a few decades after we left the assembly line really, really meant. Uh, Brian, I would like to thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes, talking to us about the, the Jobsology, the Pathway You program, all your research into what really brings someone into the right job. And I would like to thank everyone out there listening and encourage you to uh, if you're in that spot in life where you don't like Monday or you don't like what you're doing to really think about what, you know, what are your values, your interests, and what job culture that you really uh, want to be in. 